Boston State Hospital, 1942. The US is officially at war and the whole world seems to be going mad. But in his little garden oasis, Jimmy's feeling just fine. The sun's out, the birds are singing and the smell of freshly cut grass is as sweet as the boyhood innocence it brings to mind. On days like this, Jimmy can forget he's a little guy. He can forget about all the poverty, the sickness and the death that surrounded him and his family for nearly as long as he can remember and really feel grateful to be here. On days like today, he can forget it's a lunatic asylum, well, they're calling it a hospital now, and pretend it's Harvard Yard. Had he drawn a different lot, that's where he'd be admiring the flowers and soaking up the sun, not a care in the world. Jimmy's got plenty of cares, but right now he's got it good. Hell, his 45th birthday last month makes him too old for the war, but his younger brother just got drafted and his nephew's soon to enlist. When you think about all the other places you could be, the place you are doesn't seem so bad at all. But when he goes into the dining hall and notices one of these newbie guards just sitting there reading a book, no amount of sunshine and chirping birds can stop him from feeling mighty hot under the collar. Here he is, trying to remain calm and collected with the, now you've got to call them patience, putting himself at risk every single day when they keep hiring fellow guards who aren't much more than spoiled children, who sure as hell wouldn't have his back if and when he needed them. The thing they don't get is that this job is no joke. Jimmy learned that early on. When you're dealing with the feeble-minded, you've got to be ready for anything and everything. Jimmy's seen some real shit in his day, putting up with homos, pinkos, winos, loonies, you name it. Ten times out of ten, though, the inmates, patients, whatever, that get his goat the most are the rich guys who end up here because they had some highfalutin lawyer pull strings to get them sent here instead of jail. Titled sons of bitches. But there Jimmy goes, getting angry again. Must stay with the gratitude, smell that grass, and remember how lucky he is for getting this job when all the others in Boston are dried up. But God damn it, you've got to trust people you're working with, and these rich little Harvard boys who show up for the summer so they can write some fucking poetry about crazy people are really starting to piss him off. But enough complaining. Gratitude is... Whoa, whoa, whoa. Roscoe the Rhino's just pulled two legs off the coffee table and he's charging Vinny and Bobby, swinging them like tomahawks. He pulls out his club and begins running towards the melee. And here's this new kid just standing there, a short, useless little shit with curly hair. By God, boy, get in there and help. Vinny's got Roscoe pinned now. So Jimmy squares up and leans into his swing. A crack like that means Roscoe won't be needing that lobotomy after all. He's about to hit him again when the short kid with curly hair pushes past him dragging a mattress. He throws it on top of Roscoe and then jumps aboard, holding on for dear life as if he's white water rafting while the rhino writhes and howls underneath. Jimmy's got to hand it to him. He's giving it his all to keep the freak down. But he knows this type of kid. He's a summer tourist here to see how these poor schmucks live. And by that, he means the guards just as much as the patients. Then he'll go back to Harvard and someday tell his rich grandkids about the time he rode the biggest retard in the entire Boston State Hospital. Yeah, Jimmy knows the type. He resents him for it. But come on now, Jimmy. It's not your fault you were born you, nor the kids that he was born him. It's neither of your faults, and it sure as hell ain't poor Roscoe's either. Jimmy was right. That little curly-haired kid, Norman Mailer, did not last long. Twenty years later, he'd be one of those rich, powerful white men who does something very bad and as a result has to spend time in a place like this. 
but his employment that summer of 42 only lasted eight days where, aside from tackling patients, he took plenty of notes and mined the experience for his writing. After quitting, it took him only a couple of weeks to pump out a short play that would never be produced or staged, but would provide him with a title he'd recycled a few years down the road, The Naked and the Dead. Back in 2016, I lived in Paris, right next to the Charenton Asylum, the place where Donatien Alphonse François de Sade, aka the Divin Marquis, spent the last 10 years of his life, locked in under the accusation of libertine madness. I used to take morning walks there, and if the grounds of the Boston State Hospital were anything like the Charenton Asylum, then Jimmy was right. It really was a peaceful place. Anyhow, I'm Santiago Lemoine, a bookseller, failing writer, and I hate madness, but love the libertines. And I'm Corey Eastwood, a bookseller and failing writer. And it's been a long time since I delved into the depravity of Desaad. But these days, you can often find me enjoying the sweet smoothness of Sade. This is episode 4 of 10 of season 1 of Penknife, a podcast about writers who may or may not have written about crime, but who definitely committed it. Upon arrival in New York in 1957, Jerzy Kaczynski claimed to have worked a number of odd jobs, including being a restaurant's handyman, a chauffeur for a drug lord in Harlem, and a parking garage attendant. While these and the long list of other jobs might actually be true, the only one that his biographer was able to verify was the car parking gig. Apparently, when he'd get the keys to a nice ride, he would, a la the great Richard Edson valet scene in Ferris Bueller, take it out for a joyride. Can't you picture it, with his devious yet angelic smile and heavy Polish accent? You guys have nothing to worry about. I'm a professional. It was then that he developed the trick he'd later memorialize in his novel Steps, where he'd duct tape hardcover books to the sides of parked cars, then race down tiny streets, getting close enough to knock the books off, but never, as he told it, so close that he'd scratch the cars. Driving up to 100 miles per hour on Manhattan streets is a completely insane and homicidal act. But for Jersey, that's what made it fun. In fiction and in life, he delighted in showing off strange abilities and acting both the clown and the hero. From rubbing his penis with a toothbrush to hiding behind his bookshelf, or later executing death-defying moves on a ski slope or polo course, Jersey was a consummate performer. Unfortunately, a doctorate in sociology at Columbia, which was Jersey's main pursuit during his first years in New York, requires more than practice and sleight of hand. A near prerequisite is fluency in English, and that's arguably not something Jersey ever had. In those days especially, he could not write proficiently, nor speak without making a great many errors. Conjugations tripped him up, and his vocabulary was still very limited. While there wasn't much getting around this handicap in a university setting, in regards to his other main pursuits, seducing women and ingratiating himself into high society, it proved to be only a minor impediment, and even something he could use to his advantage. He happily filled the role of the exotic outsider, who, with his swarthy charm, sing-songy accent, and endearing Slavicisms, was both a favorite cocktail party guest and bedmate. The latter was helped by his aforementioned superhuman member, 
and the former by the stories he'd begun telling about his childhood during the war. It seems he learned that the best parlor trick doesn't involve hiding places, cards, or madcap stunts, but requires only a voice and a good story. And Jersey was beginning to tell some really, really good stories. In them, he'd been separated from his parents and spent years wandering alone, enduring abuse so grievous it caused the poor little guy to temporarily lose his ability to speak. This was not your usual cocktail party banter, and people began to take note. By 1943, fresh out of college and eager to join the action overseas, Mailer waited to be drafted. And waited. And waited. His great war novel depended on his draft number getting cold, and in between visits to the mailbox, he decided that he might as well write a book. Mailer was arguably a great stylist, but plots and storylines were never his strength. This weakness shaped his career and made him very keen to recycle any idea he considered half-decent. And that's what he did with his mental hospital play, which he turned into a novel he called a transit to Narcissus. His agent tried to sell it to a number of publishers, but no dice. When it did eventually get published in the late 70s, when he was badly in need of money in order to divorce wife number four to marry wife number five and six in a matter of days, critics noted a defect that Mailer would exhibit throughout his career, being overly ambitious at first and eventually rushing the ending, or in plainer words, fucking blowing it. But what's that I hear? Ah, it's wedding bells, of course, and they're chiming for the very first time for our boy Norman. While Mailer was dead sure of his reason for writing his novel and for wanting to go to war, he wasn't as sure about the marriage. Mailer's mom, however, did not share his ambivalence about Beatrice. She wanted nothing to do with her or the marriage, and actually attempted to nullify it. Mostly, she didn't want her little genius to wander too far away from her. But her efforts to keep him close failed. In January 1944, Mailer was finally drafted into the US Army. When faced with the imminent prospect of being shipped off to war, Mailer balked and asked the government for a delay, under the flimsy excuse that he was trying to finish an important literary work containing an attempt to analyze some of the fundamental differences between the fascist and democratic minds that might have some relevance to the war effort. And maybe for the last time in what would be a long time, people saw right through his grandiose bullshit. His request was denied, and by the end of March 1944, his ass was shipped off to boot camp. Jersey's various audiences began to encourage him to put his stories to paper. And in time, he got to work on what would become his first and most famous novel, The Painted Bird. But before the world would know Jerzy Kaczynski as the author of one of history's most important and widely read Holocaust narratives, he was first known as Joseph Novak, an Eastern European journalist who wrote two works of nonfiction about the Soviet Union, No Third Path and The Future is Ours, Comrade. They are both anti-communist screeds that mix sociological theory, ethnographic travelogue, ideological rants, and knowing Jersey, probably quite a bit of fiction. There are two particularly noteworthy things about these books that sadly I haven't read as they're out of print and quite hard to find. The first is that their publication was likely funded by the CIA through the United States Information Agency, 
which promoted anti-Soviet propaganda. This supposition, along with Kaczynski's stand-in protagonist in the novel Cockpit being a deep-cover spy, and again his own insinuations, played an important role in the speculation that Kaczynski himself had been a CIA operative. And while it's extremely likely that the book received CIA funding, as they were eager to promote any kind of anti-communist propaganda they could get their hands on, no, Kaczynski was not a CIA agent. An amateur spy, creepo, peeping Tom, voyeur, sketchy motherfucker, yes, all of the above, absolutely. But he never worked for Uncle Sam. The second point of note about the Novak books is that they were written in Polish and then translated into English. Instead of crediting the young Polish woman, Eva Markowska, and the other unknown writer who translated the books, Kaczynski passed them off as his own original work in English. He convinced the translators to remain silent, saying his use of a pen name and this little fib about the books being written in English were necessary to throw off the KGB as to the true identity of the author. He claimed that if the Soviets were to pinpoint him as the real Joseph Novak, they would surely harm his family. It was a case of the old, Trust me, baby. I'd give you credit, but I just can't. Because if I do that, I'd be putting not only my own mother's life at risk, but yours as well. So I'll do you a favor and pretend I did it all myself while you remain in obscurity, uncredited, and poorly recompensated. This relationship with Markovska would set a precedent for the composition methods of his future books, which would eventually bring him scandal and disgrace and call into question his entire career as a writer. To write his great war novel, Melo knew he needed to get as close as possible to the action. And so, he skipped his fancy Harvard-grad-worthy desk job and enlisted in the ranks. From day one, he began taking notes and writing down descriptions of some of his fellow soldiers in order to shape his future characters. He mailed the notes back to his wife, who dutifully compiled them and filed them away for his return. And with that, Melo took part in one of the great male writers' oldest traditions, using your wife as a secretary. June 6, 1944, D-Day. The whole world held its collective breath. But what was young Norman feeling as history unfolded? Well, in his own words, My first reaction was disappointment. I wanted to be on the beach. Secretly and selfishly, I'd wanted the invasion to wait for me. It didn't. But by the end of the year, he was finally assigned to the 112th Cavalry Regiment, which had been overseas for more than three years when Mailer joined. By then, most of its soldiers were, well, beginning to fucking lose their minds, a la Colonel Kurtz in Apocalypse Now. From this crew of North Texans, Mailer would mold most of the characters for the naked and the dead. The 112th was eventually shipped to the Philippines, where Mailer finally caught a glimpse of the action. In mid-1945, though, something started to bother him. The upcoming invasion of Japan. After all, there was a decent chance our young Norman would just become cannon fodder, and becoming a hero by dying on an anonymous beach somewhere in Japan was definitely not the kind of greatness he was going for. In early August, all his worries vanished, like much of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and the 112th was sent to Japan as an occupying force. There, our bad boy got a job as an army cook. He spent his days peeling potatoes, heating up tins of pork and beans, reading, 
and engaging in what he called the time-honored American purchase, a piece of ass. But his visits to the local geisha houses abruptly came to an end in 1946, when he got shipped back home. There, there was no more preparation to be done. It was time to get to work. While in high school, Jerzy Kaczynski came across a novel by Tadeusz Duvega Mostowicz called The Career of Nikodema Dijme. The book, which had been a massive pre-war bestseller in Poland, is a story of a small-town postal clerk who goes to Warsaw with the intention of making something of himself. In short time, he's broke, hungry, and wandering the streets when he stumbles upon an invitation to a fancy-looking party. With nothing to lose, he goes and loads up on the buffet while making small talk with the wealthy and powerful guests. He somehow manages to avoid detection as a fraud because, whenever he says something that betrays his profound ignorance, his interlocutors laugh it off as irony. By the end of the night, he's made friends with an influential old businessman, and soon enough, he's moved in with the man, seduced his much younger wife, and begun a career that will take him to the very top of Polish society. In a conversation with a high school friend, Jersey remarked that the brilliance of Nicodeme Dishme wasn't so much as a novel, but as a handbook for how to succeed in life. It was all quite simple. Fake it till you make it, baby. Upon arrival in New York, he'd made sure to turn up at all the right parties. And several years and several books into his new life, it was working. He'd made plenty of friends in high places and opportunities were beginning to present themselves. But he'd remained poor, constantly having the stress about money. It was time to take the next step in the Dijme playbook, which was to marry a rich woman. And in 1962, at the age of 29, Jerzy Kaczynski did just that. Mary Weir was 18 years Jersey's senior, and she'd been over 40 years younger than her deceased husband, a steel industry tycoon who left her an enormous fortune. At the time, Jersey had a steady girlfriend, whom he reassured he was just in it for the money. But though Mary Weir's wealth and access to power clearly played a large part in Kaczynski's attraction to her, there's evidence to suggest that there was much more to it than that. In the beginning of his book Blind Date, Jersey's stand-in, Levantar, has a prolonged sexual relationship with his mother. Jersey often wrote about his mother's good looks in a sexual way. He constantly told of how buxom she was and claimed she would have been a world-famous pianist had her massive breasts not gotten in the way of her playing. He once remarked to a friend that he fantasized about having sex with his mother. He said, quote, I would like to give her that pleasure. I'm sorry, but that is ridiculous. I mean, can you imagine? My mother, she was very buxom, very curvaceous, you know? It was a bad thing because the big tits, they, they get in the way of playing piano, so she can't make it to the concert hall. But also a nice thing, of course, because... The big titties, well, they make me want to give her that pleasure, you know? Anyway, I'm really sorry. Corey? Though there is no evidence to suggest that Jersey's fantasy about his mother ever became reality, his sexual proclivities tended toward the Oedipal. In Mary Weir, he found not only a lover, but someone who could take care of him financially and legitimize him in high society. But as perfect as Mary was for Jersey... She was, like all women in his life, far from enough. While married to her, he continued to see his girlfriend, 
and was in the regular habit of soliciting prostitutes. With them, he was able to explore a kink he'd later manifest through his novels. He not only liked to watch sex scenes, but to stage them as well. Therefore, two people were seldom enough for him, and on one such escapade, while his wife Mary was away for the night, he convinced her 18-year-old son to join them. Jersey, a friend, a prostitute, and his stepson. Stepdad of the year, Jersey Kuzinski. As soon as he came back from Japan in May 1946, Mailer sat down and began pumping out draft after draft. This focused, hard-working side of Norman Mailer is one we won't see again for quite some time. For the first few months, he wrote for seven hours a day, four days a week, bunkered down in a cottage in Provincetown. Every morning, before starting, he'd read a few pages of Anna Karenina, and then, after a hard day's work, he'd have a beer. Yep, one beer. Something else we won't see for a while. After Mailer finished his first draft, he and his wife moved to Brooklyn, around the corner from his parents' flat. In the same brownstone lived a young writer who was working on a little play you might have heard of, called Death of a Salesman. Apparently both Mailer and Miller were convinced that the other one wouldn't amount to anything. In any case, Mailer carried on writing, adding more and more pages to his manuscript, and began showing it to publishers. Eventually, his hard work paid off with a book deal from Reinhardt and a pretty decent advance. By the end of 1947, at just 24, Mailer had an almost 900-page draft of what would soon be sold as, yes, the Second World War's great novel. I give you truth in the pleasant disguise of illusion. That's right, Tennessee thinks, swiveling his drink as Leela shows him some crayon smudges on a piece of paper, baby's first drawing. He hadn't said anything new there in his opening to the glass menagerie, but damn, did they eat it up. And of course they did. It's what everyone wants. Illusion is the sugar that makes the medicine go down. How'd that cream poem go? I saw a creature naked, bestial in the desert, eating his heart. I asked him how it was, and he said, I like it, because it is bitter, and because it is my heart. A nice poem, but the reality is that most people can't stomach their own unadulterated bitterness. They all dress it up with hope. To quote the menagerie again, the long, delayed, but always expected something that we live for. Leela smudged some paper in a blackout, and now her son is going to be Van Gogh. Good reason as any to get up in the morning. Anyhow, this Negroni tastes off. Tennessee can't tell if it's too bitter or not bitter enough. The same, he supposes, can be said about life these days. It just tastes off. Even with all the accolades and money, it just never tastes like it did back in those halcyon days in Rome. And then back here in New York with Frank. No. Tennessee's not going there today. Not going to allow himself that self-pity. Leela's talking. Nonsense, of course, but talking nonetheless, so he's going to listen to the old bag. His doctor told him that seeing friends is a good thing, and Leela's one of the few people he can stomach these days because she's clearly worse off than he is. Sure, he knows he likes his drinky pies a little too much, and sure, it's been a while since one of his plays has seen success, but at least he hasn't lost his mind. If anything, his depression 
his nasty blue devils a proof of how intact his mind is. His problem is that he's losing his ability to suspend his disbelief. He's gotten too good at seeing through the disguise of illusion. So why not spend time with someone who's completely cut ties with reality? Perhaps he could learn a thing or two. Yes, Leela, your son definitely has talent, and yes, thank you. I don't mind if I do fix myself another, even though it will invariably be too bitter or not bitter enough. So how is the little one? Oh, he's teething already. That's impressive. I guess he's going to grow up to be a great big eater. Ah, yes, look at Leela glow. Just like an actual parent, Tennessee can spout any kind of utter nonsense and she's beaming with pride. Jesus H. Christ, he thought it was odd when Leela, who was most definitely over 60, told him that she was pregnant. As far as he knew, that was impossible. But what was he supposed to say? Ask her how she managed to defy biology? Be the one to break the news and tell her that she was now, officially, batshit crazy? Why rain on the old bird's parade? Congratulations, my dear, you're going to make a great mother. But come to think of it, Tennessee remembers that she once told him she'd already had a few who must be all grown up by now. And judging by what he's seen of Leela's life with all the drugs and booze and the kind of filthy hanky-panky that would make even the most debauched queen blush, she hasn't been the best of role models. But who's he to judge? New baby, new opportunity to get it right. Oh, the little one is out with the nanny for a walk again. What a coincidence that every time Tennessee's invited over to see him, the nanny decides it's time to take the little tyke out for a two, three, four-hour walk. Well, so be it. There's nothing wrong with a little make-believe, and you have to admire Leela's dedication to the ruse. For a good six months, when she proudly displayed the bulge in her saggy old gut, she also swore off booze. Impressive. But God, what a drag she'd been trying to pass off DTs as morning sickness. The thing that most fascinates him about the whole cockamamie story is that she's enlisted that fellow Jersey Kaczynski as her co-conspirator. She claims he's the father. Tennessee's met him a few times, and while he doesn't at all trust him, nor much care for his riding, he can't help but like him. Obviously, whatever gypsy spell Jersey cast on Tennessee, it worked with Leela as well. She's a good 35 years his senior, and though he never does much but come by every now and again for what's probably not much more than a pity fuck, she's absolutely obsessed with him. Come to think of it, he wouldn't be surprised if this whole ruse was Jersey's idea in the first place. Jersey Kaczynski, the man with the sperm so potent it can impregnate a postmenopausal senior citizen. Whatever. Oh, that's a pretty onesie. Yes, I can't wait to see it on him. Around the same time he was inviting his stepson to join him in group sex with prostitutes, Jersey began a long-term sexual relationship with another older woman named Leela Von Seher. Von Seher was, among other things, an actress, novelist, and cookbook writer who hosted a weekly salon at her mid-down apartment, which was frequented by the likes of Gore Vidal, Truman Capote, and a rather sad alcoholic named Tennessee Williams. It was there, actually, at one of Leela's salons that Kaczynski met our guy, Norman Mailer. Along with introducing Jersey to the right people to advance his literary career, she was also known to procure prostitutes for him. 
For this, Jersey was grateful, but it was really Leela's loving that Jersey liked best. His kinks were often too much for his partners, but never for Leela. She was also a well-established dominatrix who was known to service many of the writers who attended her salons. The story we just heard is true. In 1967, when Von Sayer was over 60 years old, she claimed to be carrying Jersey's baby. Friends noticed a bulge in her stomach, and her apartment was filled with a crib and baby clothes. When friends would come over to visit, after she'd supposedly given birth, the baby was always conveniently out for a walk with the nanny. The incident was later fictionalized in Cockpit, when Tarden, the novel's Kaczynski stand-in, encounters an older woman he used to sleep with, who's desperate to have a baby. She takes hormone shots and comes to an agreement with Tarden, where he's able to sleep with the young woman she procures for him as long as she can collect his sperm upon ejaculation. Eventually, she has the baby, but gives the child up for adoption to a family in Long Island. Jersey did not make up the story of Leela Von Sayer's pregnancy, but there's a 99.9% chance that she made it up. I leave that 0.1% possibility because, in real life, Jersey claimed to have fathered three illegitimate children. One with a Polish student, another with a chambermaid, and one who was adopted by a family in Long Island. Whether or not Jersey spent some of the mid-60s making babies, he definitely spent a good part of them writing or, well, let's say, publishing novels. After the Novak books, he decided to ditch the moniker and write directly from the heart. And the results? They were fucking legendary. And so, Mailer makes it. The Naked and the Dead is in its third reprint within weeks, and critics love it. He's interviewed by magazines, asked to give lectures, and, of course, invited to fancy cocktail parties all over Manhattan. There he is, reasonably handsome and unthinkably famous, mingling, flirting, and cracking jokes. And who's that? It's Tallulah Bankhead, the legendary actress, sex icon, and queen of sass, one of her 120 cigarettes a day in hand, a drink in the other, her mind running a million miles per hour on booze and pills when someone brings her young writer to her attention. Miss Bankhead, this is Norman Mailer, the author of The Naked and the Dead, the book that's- I know, I know, she interrupts in her husky voice. You're the guy who doesn't know how to spell fuck. Or it could have been Dorothy Parker, actually. Or nobody at all. Though the story has been relayed by countless gossip magazines and by Mailer himself, it probably never happened. But who cares? What happened was that Mailer was told by his editors to tone down the language in The Naked and the Dead. And the first step was to get rid of some of those dreadful four-letter words, particularly the F-bomb. Mailer did so by replacing them all with FUG, as a big FUCK YOU, or FUG YOU, if you will, to the editors. Another nice story, but that one is not true either. It was common during the 40s and 50s to be forced by your publisher to switch out FUCK for FUG. Steinbeck did it in Canary Row. But it was Mailer who made the substitute word notorious, maybe because the term appeared hundreds and hundreds of times in his book. The only lasting remnant of the word is as the name of the legendary band The Fugs, founded by poet Tule Kupferberg and Ed Sanders, one of the few booksellers 
to ever have any success as a writer. I've tried to listen to them many times, but never quite managed to like them, even though the FBI called the band, quote, the most vulgar thing the human mind could possibly conceive. That said, if you're looking for archaic vulgarity and filthy language, fuck aside, there's still a ton of that in The Naked and the Dead. We leave you with Norman Mailer reading from his book. What the fuck do you think I got? What's the use of torturing the poor bastard? All oh, the motherfucking luck, that son of a bitch. What's the matter, he asked, you going chicken shit? You're only going to get your fucking head blown off tomorrow. You think I'd bitch? That Croft's a bastard, he told himself. Let's cut out that coot size shit. You look like a fucking yid. The dumb bastard sure is skinny, he said. You think I'd bitch? Santi's taking some of next week off to relax and listen to stories of cannibals and axe murderers. So the whole episode's going to be about Jersey Kaczynski and the story behind The Painted Bird. Hands down, one of the 20th century's most disturbing novels. We hope you join us then for episode 5 of Penknife. Penknife is created, written, and produced by Corey Eastwood and Santiago Lemoine. Ramona Stout is our editor and narrator. The logo and all things visual have been made by Nelly Cuellar Torres. The sound design, the music, and all things audio are the work of Diego Sanchez of La Pianola Studio in Buenos Aires. Our website, penknifepodcast.com, was built by Flor Lopez. And a very special thanks to Mr. Rico Benelli for letting us turn his spare bedroom into a recording studio. Season one of Penknife took us two years to make. We're eager to get started on season two, and trust me, we've got some really good stories about writers behaving badly, but to do so, we need your help. If you're enjoying what you're hearing and want season two to become a reality, please consider heading over to patreon.com slash penknife to support us. A cup of coffee or two a month would go a long way. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Penknife on whatever app or platform you're using. And most importantly, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend about us. And thank you for listening. You ornery son of a bitch. Pretty fucking funny. Go fuck yourself.